This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. What a treat this week. We are interviewing probably one of the most prominent and well-known individuals that we've had on this show before. And that is Natan Sharansky. Natan Sharansky has done an incredible number of things in his life. And he's probably a household name to most of you listening. He was a prisoner of Zion, a Soviet dissident. He was in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. He was the head of the Jewish agency. He's a multi-time author, international speaker, a great chess prodigy, among many other titles and qualities and accolades. So he really needs no introduction and I'm thrilled to have him on the show, and I think you will enjoy hearing about his history as well. A reminder that sponsorships or dedications are available. Email JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. JewsYouShouldKnow with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, whatever it might be. Let your friends and family know to do so as well. And now, to our conversation with Natan Sharansky. We are here with Natan Sharansky, one-time prisoner of Zion, long-time member of Knesset, head of the Jewish Agency, and world-renowned Jewish personality. How are you, Natan? Shalom, Yerushalayim. I welcome all of you from Jerusalem. I wish we could be there. Unfortunately, right now, no one can get in. Maybe you can help us uh, sneak through. <laughs> Israel is preparing to bigger Aliyah after Corona, so you can also prepare. I saw the statistics, and I would love to be added to that list, God willing. Uh, so take us to the beginning. I'm sure many people are broadly familiar with the contours of your life story, but where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your early childhood. I was born in the city of Stalino, later called Donetsk, in Ukraine. I don't think that a few years ago many people knew about this city, but today it is the center of war activity between Ukraine and Russia. So tragically, it became famous. Is that Crimea? No, no, no. It's, it's Donbass. It's, well, it's to the north from Crimea, but still it's like southern Ukraine. When I was born, 1948, and during all my childhood, first 18 years of my life, nobody could really imagine that the next war there will be between Russians and Ukrainians. Russians and Ukrainians were part of one empire, Soviet empire, and we all lived in this so-called communist paradise of Soviet empire, deprived of identity and deprived of freedom. When I say that I was second generation of assimilated Jews, for people it's even difficult to imagine what it means to be assimilated Soviet Jew. Usually today when you speak about assimilated Jew in America, for example, uh, you mean that uh, this poor boy or girl after their bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, didn't come back to the shul. We didn't have bar mitzvah, we didn't know what the word bar mitzvah means. We didn't have Brit Milah, we didn't know what it means. 
We didn't have Hanukkah or Purim. We didn't know the meaning of this word. There were no language, no history, no religion, of course. It simply didn't exist in our lives. The only really Jewish thing which existed was anti-Semitism. A lot of anti-Semitism both in the streets and official state anti-Semitism with all types of restrictions. So the moment it is written in the idea of your parents Jew, so all the conversations at home are how we Jews are restricted, how we are discriminated, and what we have to do to overcome it. And the message of the parents was very clear. Because you're Jew, you must be the best in physics or mathematics or chess or music. In fact, doesn't matter in what. But you must be professionally the most successful person. And that is our way, Jewish way, to survive in spite of all these prejudices and restrictions. Did your parents have any Jewish background themselves? Huh? They were, did your parents remember? Of course, of course they, my grandfather, until the late last years of his life, was going to the synagogue. And then the two books which were saved from him, it was uh, the Magzor, that he was a prayer book, and the Passover Agadah, which... Of course, I couldn't read, which didn't have any special meaning for me. With the time, I understood how valuable it is. And uh, my father, what we had a small stage of David and Goliath, and uh, my father told me the story of David and Goliath, so, and said that we, we just should not be ashamed of our history. But there was no real history. There was no real Jewish life or even remembering what it is Jewish life. In fact, it was like you're born with some disease, you're born with it, and you have to learn how to adjust to it. There was no real values in this. At the same time, not only we didn't have any identity, we didn't have any freedom. We knew from a very early childhood that we live under the regime where you should never say what you really think. I remember the day when I became loyal Soviet citizen. I was five years old. Stalin died. And my father explains to me in my five years, making sure that our neighbors who lived in the same apartment don't hear us. He explains to me that it's very good for us, for Jews, that Stalin died because we were in danger. And now, just in the moment of danger, miracle happened, Stalin died. And you should remember all your life. But he said, don't say it to anybody. Do what everybody does. And next day I go to the kindergarten and I cry with all the children about death of Stalin. And they sing with all the children about the great son of all the people, uh, Stalin, and how we are grateful to him for this happy childhood which he gave to us. So I sing, I cry, and I have no idea how many of children cry because, like me, because their father told them, to cry, oh, how many of them are crying, really? So that is typical way of Soviet life. Do you feel like you had a happy, you were happy at that time, or you were confused? No, not happy. Simply I knew that there is something happened very good for us, which I should not say publicly. And that's this double life of Soviet citizens, which we had 
all through the, until I became a dissident, until I became a Zionist, that you, you're saying what you're supposed to say, you're reading books which are permitted to read, you make speeches which they expect you to make, you vote, of course, as everybody, and you know that all this is lying. But the real truth can be said only in the small circle of your family. And this life of double thinker is very uncomfortable. But, but you don't even think that maybe you should fight this false life, these lies, because there are no values for which you will be ready to risk your career. There are no values which are more important than your personal success. So that's continued until 1967 and until because of Israel, which entered our life very powerfully, I rediscovered my history. I started reading about my connection to Jewish people, reading, of course, the underground from the books which were brought, smuggled, in fact, by tour, Jewish tourists. And suddenly you discover that there is such unique history that you want to be part of it. There is a unique group of people who all come and say, oh, your father is from Odessa and my father is from Odessa. We are family, we want to help you. And there is State of Israel, which is ready to send the airplanes to the end of the world, but to help you. That's how you discover your identity. History, people in the state that you want to belong to. And that's when you really have some things which are more important in your life than your professional career. And with the time they're becoming values which are more important than physical survival. And that's what gives you strength to start fighting for your rights, for the rights of the other Jews, and then simply for the freedom. Was there ever a time when you actually believed in the communist propaganda as a child or you never believed it? No, I didn't believe because our family was full of skepticism and negative experience, but I was a good citizen. I knew that I have to play by rules in order to succeed and I uh, uh, prepared, worked very hard to be accepted to one of the most prestigious physical and medical institutions, which always was, co we are comparing to American MIT. And it was very difficult for Jew to enter there. So when I did succeed playing, of course, role of loyal citizen, I thought that is the highest point. Now I am in this ivory tower of uh, science protected from all the ideologies in the world. Now I can be myself, now I can be a scientist. And then came realization of the importance of my identity and of the importance of fighting for freedom and all this fell apart. So what happened? How did you get sparked to start reading? Was it the Six Day War in 67? I would say two, two big events in my life. One, of course, Six Day War. And I can't pretend that Six Day War or Israel's victory by itself was so important in my life that my career became less important. But Israel's victory, which was huge humiliation for Soviet superpower, which spent a lot of money and uh, weapons and so-called advisors, and which used its intelligence to encourage Egypt to go to this war, and then the failure, and humiliation, and of course you're happy that Soviet Union, which I, as many other double thinkers, don't believe in theology, 
lost the special loss to Jewish state, but when it really became important, when in the weeks to come you see that everybody around you, your friends and your enemies, are looking at you with amazement and are saying to you, how you guys did it? They don't say, maybe you, because you're Jewish, maybe you have somebody who's there who can tell us what will happen. No, they simply say, how you guys did it? So you understand, for them, you are connected to Israel. You're like part of it. And in the beginning, you're almost angry. So isn't it dangerous? Why they suspect me in this non-loyalty? But then you start becoming curious. What does this connection mean for all the world, for all the going? You are connected, so you'll better understand it. And that's when you start reading the books. From Exodus from Egypt to Exodus of Leon Uris about modern history. And suddenly you realize that there is such unique history. And people of your age, who is this Exodus of Leon Uris? It's people of your age who were creating the state. And then you look at these pictures of the soldiers, 1967, who are near the Kotel. You look at three of them, and they are exactly of your age. That's how you think, 19, 20 years old. And they are part of this exciting, powerful history. And what you're doing here in this castle of science where you cannot even say what you really think. The second event, which was late, almost a year later, was Andrei Sakharov, the leading scientist of the Soviet Union. And we in the, my institute knew very well who is Sakharov, who was by the most awarded Soviet scientist, non-Jewish, by the way, but one of the few non-Jews who were at the top of physical science, and who was believed to be the father of hydrogen bomb. And he wrote, suddenly he went public and wrote the open letter to the leaders of the Soviet Union, where he warned them that because there is no freedom of thought, the Soviet science will never be successful, and our society will never be successful, that only Free thinking, that is an absolutely necessary condition for everything, from science, for arts, for... And in one day, this scientist number one became a dissident number one in the Soviet Union. And had huge influence on me. He said, I'm in this beginning of this career of science. I'm at the bottom of this castle, ivory castle. And I hope that here I will become free persons from science. Here, the one who is at the top, I will never reach his level. And he says that he reached the top, and he said there is no freedom, and there is no way of being successful scientists in the country which doesn't permit free thought. And you know, he was not Jewish. Later, when we became very closely working with him, I would say that he was is my rabbi, but he, <laughs> I, he was not Jewish. But that also had a big influence on me. And with the time when I became activist of Zionist movement, I also proposed to Andrei Sakharov to give my help in connecting with the foreigners, with the journalists. And I became also spokesman for human rights movement in the Soviet Union. And I always felt this connection very natural. It's my identity, my Zionism, which gives me strength to speak on behalf of freedom. So you started reading a lot. And what did you find was the most influential book that you read 
in that period? I mentioned you, it it's, uh, sounds strange, because if you read today, Leonuri's Exodus, it looks like, well, nice mobimises, yeah? <laughs> but I would say then it had unbelievable influence. And, you know, one family is keeping this book and reading for one night. And then in the morning, they try to pass it to the next family. First of all, because they're afraid to keep it for long. Nobody wants to keep books which can be confiscated by KGB and you can be punished. But second, the, the others are standing in line. And so it was really, it had unbelievable influence. It was changing the perception of many of us that, in fact, you discover that Russian Jews, the age of your grandfather, they were those who brought this light of Zionism. They were those who went, moved to Palestine. They, then you find out how it was developed. Then uh, how all this history is closely intervened, con- uh, connected. And it was so easy to connect it with Exodus from Egypt, because that's what you discovered, that your history begins not from Bolshevik revolution, not from all these Bolshevik purges and killings and awful things that you ideologically don't believe, and uh, you are even ashamed to be part of this history. And then you find out that if only you will make some twist in your mind, you'll have 3,000 years additional of the history. And it's so interesting. It's, it's so exciting. Then in the underground also we got this book of Six Day War. Described, I think first it was described by British journalist Churchill, the grandson of, uh, of Churchill. Yeah. And he was like a British correspondent covering Six Day War in the Middle East. And then of course we are getting Israeli sources. It was all very interesting. Later with the time we uh, started reading the history of Jewish people, because the one which came from Israel, Ettinger's, Yoram, I don't remember. Your messenger? Yeah. No, no, not Yoram. It was some historian, Ettinger, who wrote in Israel. And then we found in some houses who kept the original Dubnov's history of Jewish people, which was published in the Tsarist Russia and somehow was kept by some of the families. Only later came also reading of the religious texts. That was much later. And I would say that really connected to, to our religious tradition, I became really in prison. Prison happened to be a great place to talk to Kadosh Baruch Hu directly. So how, tell me about prison. How, how did you get arrested? What happened? How long after you started your activism? Well, at really- uh, the beginning of the 70s, I joined the movement. And then very quickly, I started from being activist going on demonstrations, but what means demonstrations? 10 Jews standing for five minutes in front of Kremlin with the slogans, let our people go. Why only 10 Jews? Because the more Jews know in advance, the more chance that KGB will know and there'll be no demonstration. Why only five minutes? Even if KGB doesn't know in advance, the longest time that you can stand before you'll be arrested. And then can be arrested up to five years. So what is the power of this demonstration? But if it is organized, well, that was my role, meaning that KGB does know, but you succeeded to tell it at least to one foreign journalist. And it was very difficult to communicate with foreign journalists without KGB in the middle, because they lived in the special apartments isolated by KGB. So we developed our ways of communication. One of the journalists comes, watching the demonstration, 
You are arrested in the evening. BBC Voice of America called Israel Radio Liberty broadcast that 10 Jews are arrested only for their desire to go to Israel. And next day, tens of thousands of Jews all over the world start their demonstrations, their protests, demanding from their governments to act immediately. And that's how our struggle was built. And very soon after being sometimes the activist, and this is maybe the most important role or chain which I can feel, is to be in constant contact with the journalists, with the foreigners who are coming, with the tourists, and the, but there was, there was a long list of my accomplices, hundreds and hundreds of Jewish tourists who were coming from different countries, from different organizations, but who were bringing us materials, who were taking our letters, who were smuggling them abroad and keeping us connected to the world. So after some years of being spokesman of the Zionist movement and human rights movement of the Soviet Union, I was arrested, accused in high treason, and year and a half of interrogations, and then nine years in prison. I was sentenced to much longer term, but because it was the permanent daily struggle of Jewish people, which pressed Soviet Union, the struggle which involved the leaders of Western countries, and President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, President Mitterrand played a special important role. My wife, who left for Israel one day our Cooper, and we thought we'll, I'll join her in a few months. I joined her 12 years later. But she really, in these 12 years, she succeeded to open the doors of every world leader in the world, thanks and with the support of all the Jewish people. Where did you meet her? Well, I met, met her near the synagogue where we were always meeting. There it was. Our headquarters was the street in front of the synagogue. Synagogue was something belonging to the Soviet authorities. But street in front of it, that was the place where Jewish activists were meeting, discussing, planning. And one day, just during the Yom Kippur War, the, the war of Yom Kippur 1973, one tall, very tall guy came and said that he is looking for the way to join one of those demonstrations of Jewish activists. And he was sent to me. And I immediately organized for him to participate in the next demonstration. And he was arrested for 15 days and disappeared. Next week, his sister came to look for him. To look, who knows what happened to him. She was sent to me. I understood, that's it. I should not wait until your brother will get out of the prison. <laughs> and I wanted very much to impress this very beautiful young girl. And I told her, you see that guy, ah, and what we are doing at this moment, we were collecting the signatures of Jews who want to donate their blood for Tzaghal, for Israel army. And of course, uh, it was all fiction. Nobody was going to take this blood, but <laughs> then to go to, with this demand to the Red Cross organization, and to, of course, to inform the correspondents, to demonstrate solidarity of us, Jews in the Soviet Union with the struggle of Israel. And I told to, to this young girl, Natasha, you see this guy, it's my KGB tale. Look what I'm doing. And they came to him and said, are you ready to sign this letter and to donate your blood to Israel army? And of course, he was not supposed to talk to me. He rushed away, but my aim was not him, of course. My way, uh, aim was to embrace this girl. 
And then I get, uh, the student, this girl is also interested. I ask her, do you want the mentor to start studying Hebrew? We are all studying Hebrew. I can help you to join the group. What is your level? She said, and what is your level? I said, oh, my level is very high. <laughs> almost 1,000 words. She said, that's exactly my level. So I can go to your group. But she joined our group and understood that she exaggerated for 995 words approximately. <laughs> so for this, I understood that she also was interested. And so it was really love at first glance. But then when she started participating in our activity and she was also taking arrest for interrogations. I decided that I am already refused. She's, I decided, no, you have to apply. Maybe at least you will be successful. I don't want you to wait here with all the threats. And we planned to have a hoopa, and it's all happened. There was just when Nixon came to the Soviet Union during this summit, all the troublemakers were arrested. So I was suddenly arrested. And at the same time, my wife. She's pushed out of the Soviet Union immediately, and she insists that she cannot because all the money I was, her fiancé and so on. On the 3rd of July, thanks God, Nixon leaves Moscow. I'm released. On the 4th of July, we have our hoopa, the private apartment, of course, nobody will agree to do it publicly. Like, like Corona, almost like Corona. <laughs> yeah. And the 5th of July, she leaves for Israel, and they take her to the airport, and they tell her, You'll see in half a year we'll be together. So when I met her 12 years later in Germany, when I crossed the bridge, I told her, sorry, I'm late. But these 12 years, of course, this very shy young girl turned into the leader of the biggest demonstration of the world, and there was not a one leader whose doors she didn't open. May I remember very well the rally on Washington in 1986? Oh. Yep. 87. 87. That already was when I was released and we initiated this. When I came to America and called and said, there are hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews who are waiting that the Iron Curtain will fall and they'll join us. That's be the hundreds of thousands of American Jews who will come to Washington when Gorbachev will come. And I remember there were many skeptics for almost for, more than for a year. I was fighting for this idea against skeptics. First of all, we are afraid that there are no hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews. Second, they were saying there is no way to bring in the winter hundreds of thousands of American Jews to Washington. They said, it's not New York, Washington. Specials say we cannot bring more than 18,000. And then there was, of course, fear that Reagan will see it as fight against, we Jews don't want to be warmongers and that Reagan will not like it. I simply had to use our very special relations between President Reagan and our family because he was really very helpful. He was very moved by Vitaly when I was in prison. And, he was, and so and I thanked him when I was released and told him that his evil empire speech was the best speech that we could ever dream about in Soviet prison. And here I'm Take a Italian, we go to Reagan, and I ask him directly, do you understand that this demonstration that we are talking about will not be against you? And he said immediately, what, somebody can think that I would like Gorbachev to be my friend when he keeps these Jews in prison? Do everything what you have, and I'll do what I have. So I went back to 
Jewish leaders of America said, you know, Reagan wants this demonstration. Still, Morris Abel was a great leader of American Jewry, who was the head of then of conference organization of presidents. He went to Schultz and he said, do you really want this demonstration? <laughs> and Schultz told him, not only you want, I want it when Gorbachev comes and on every TV screen, he'll look, he'll see only this demonstration. It will help us. So, uh, and I was traveling all over America speaking to students. Everybody wanted this demonstration. I think you spoke to me also. Six weeks before Gorbachev came, finally there was a decision of American Jewish organizations to have this demonstration. And I think David Harris, who was then the head of idea, not the American Jewish Committee in Washington, became the director general of this demonstration. And the moment finally established, decided they got, did all the logistics very quickly. And all this great enthusiasm, which I saw all over America, immediately was translated into the trains and buses and airplanes. And on that day, I remember it was such a pleasure. I and uh, Elie Wiesel with the other leaders of Jewish organization were marching. And 250,000 Jews were marching after us. And it was as big as Martin Luther King's demonstration. And it's interesting that next day, when there was a meeting between Gorbachev and uh, Reagan, Reagan started with this. He said, you saw my people, what they really think, how I can ignore this problem. We cannot really move ahead until you're keeping the iron curtain, don't let these people go. So now we know from American side and from Soviet side, how important this demonstration was. That was like <clears throat> the final battle of American Jews who, I have to say, for 25 years, we were fighting this fight. And KGB was telling me while I was in prison, well, but who they are? They're a bunch of students and housewives. But I knew these students and housewives, they're Jewish students and Jewish housewives and Jewish lawyers and Jewish doctors and Jewish scientists, they all we were the soldiers who defeated the army of KGB. Now, While you were in prison, is that what kept you going? That hope? How did you stay sane? Uh, of course. Well, of course, I didn't know what's happening. In the year and a half of interrogations, you nothing. Then I have the right to have meeting every half a year with my family. But because of bad behavior, I had two personal meetings in nine years. So what is this, bad behavior? What does that mean? What did you do? I was accused that I have bad influence on the others. Ah. But and the main thing, of course, was that I was not ready to make any compromise with KGB. I felt that every day that I say no to KGB, I fulfill all my teriagmits what, you know, in, in daily life, you know, but as good as I know, it's practically impossible to feel that you are fulfilling all the commandments. Nobody can. It's, it's crazy. 613 commandments. Who can do it? In prison, it's very easy. You said no to KGB, you fulfilled all your moral obligations. Now, I let the Jewish people to continue. I did my part. So I didn't know a lot what's happening. I knew very little. But I was absolutely sure that whatever KGB says, my people continue the struggle. And my people means not only Israel, and not only Soviet Jews, but the Jews of the United States of America, the Jews of the world. I, was, I knew already in the days of the, my activism how big is their devotion, how big is their enthusiasm 
uh, how big this desire to make together this Jewish history. So, we- uh, so that's 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 why, by the way, my book, which is published just now, will be in the bookshops on the first of September, which I wrote together with Detroit. It's called Never Alone. It's about nine years in prison, nine years in the government, nine years in Jewish agency. But it's called Never Alone because even in the in the punishing cells, years of solitary confinement, you feel so deeply and so strongly that the moment you joined your Jewish history, you're never alone. So when you finally were able to get released and go to Israel, what was that like? And what did you start to do right away? Well, first of all, it was very dramatic. I had this unique experience because I didn't know what's happening. I didn't know that Reagan, the meeting in Geneva, I think, their first meeting in Geneva, and Vitalis always was demonstrating in front of its palace of nations, uh, together with some Jews who came to help him. And Reagan started that meeting, as he later told me, with the words of Gorbachev, you can keep saying that Sharansky is a spy, but my people believe to that lady. He meant Avital who was demonstrating in front of the earth. So nothing will help you. And uh, I didn't know, but like three weeks after this, I was suddenly taken from the punishment cell where I spent already a lot of time. And it was, I was very, very weak. And they suddenly moved me to the hospital and started feeding and giving vitamins and injections and food that I forgot already that it exists, and giving two hours every day of walking in the snow of Ural and see the sun when I didn't see for many months the sun. And uh, that's what continued for more than a month. And I added 15 kilos, and I, well, since then I added another 25. <laughs> but then it was very good. I saw they preparing me for some meeting with some top KGB guy, but it happened something much bigger. One day they took me, took off all this prison clothes, gave me civil clothes, put me on the airplane. They don't say where we go, but by sun I see that so many hours on to the west, there must be at the border. And I say, did you kidnap me? There's a huge airplane for maybe 200 passengers, but only I and four KGB guys. And then they say that in accordance with the special decision of Soviet government for the behavior not worthy of the Soviet citizen, I am deprived of Soviet citizenship and exiled. And then I uh, land in Berlin and there American ambassador takes, takes me from the Eastern Berlin to the Western Berlin through Blinniki Bridge. And there I meet, there is a small airplane from Israel where I meet my wife of the 12 years, and tell her, sorry, I'm late, and we fly to Israel. And then the door opens, and she says, here is our Prime Minister, Shimon Peres, and here is our Foreign Minister, Itzhak Shamir, and here are our Chief Rabbis, and so on, and so on. And we are, I am welcomed by a big crowd of people, and after a short speech where I say that not for a moment, we should not forget those who are left behind me, let's continue our struggle. And we go straight to the quarter. And so this day, which started in KGB, finishes at the quarter with a huge crowd of people. So I really have this unique experience of going straight from hell to paradise. And now it's already 30 years. When you're in paradise, you can go on and go down. There is nothing above. (laughs) 
I belong for 30 years now down, and I'm still in paradise. Well, with a lot of challenges, with a lot of things that you can see more clearly, with a lot of divisions which are becoming obvious. But okay, you know, look, the Olam Rabba is also, there are many problems to solve. Did you know and right away you were going to go to politics? First, I was not going to go to politics. I wanted to concentrate on the release of Soviet Jews. And that's when, during my first trip to America, came this idea of the demonstration in Washington, which happened a year later. And by the uh, way, you also spoke at my school in Baltimore, Maryland. By the way, Baltimore was one of the first cities from which I started my campaign for the demonstration to Washington, because Baltimore community was the closest to Washington. So I started from Baltimore, then went all the way to Los Angeles. I remember <laughs> hearing you. I was, I was nine I years old. Bring, yeah, Los Angeles had to bring airplanes to the demonstration, but Baltimore by train and by car, there was a lot of people from Baltimore. Yes. So uh, there were, you had hundreds of speeches. But so in different ways, we continued our struggle. But then when big aliyah started coming more and more, it became clear that we have to make special efforts for its integration. And we created Soviet Jewry Zionist Forum together with Yuri Etenstein and some other. But then when it became clear that it's not enough social initiatives, you really need political tools, that we created the party Israeli Baliyah, Israel with Alim or Israel on Rise. And we told from the beginning, I told that that's ad hoc party. We needed for a short period of time to break the ceiling to bring this aliyah into Israeli society. And really, this party existed for seven years, but I think it had great achievements in terms of solving the housing problems, in terms of uh, solving the problem, creating jobs for new immigrants, removing many, many barriers which then existed. That's how I became a politician. What did you yeah. learn in politics? It's very different than being an activist. You have to compromise and negotiate. Yeah, well, that, that, that was the biggest challenge. By the way, I think that's why it's very difficult for dissidents to be in politics. Because dissidents about non-compromising struggle for your ideal. Politics is, you have to compromise all the time. Otherwise, politicians, especially the coalition government, how you can succeed? And I always had this torturous experience, whether that is the compromise which I can afford or not afford. And that's why I, twice I resigned. When many years later, in 2009, Bibi Netanyahu proposed me again to, to go with him and to be minister at his government. And I said, I'm not interested. But he said, what about being ambassador in Washington? I said, I'm not interested. He said, you're not interested? I said, look, Bibi, I was in four different governments and they resigned twice. For a comparison, I was in four different prisons and they never resigned. <laughs> really my field. And he said, so you are not interested in public life? Sarcastic. I said, no, if you'll support me as a candidate to be the head of Jewish agency, I'm interested. He almost fell from the chair. The head of Jewish agency usually wants to go to the government, wants to be ambassador in Washington, wants to be minister. And here I said, I had it. I think it's not for me. So he said, what is so special? He said, almost sarcastically, you think there'll be another million Jews? You can take credit for bringing them? 
said, I'm not sure, I'd like to, I'm not sure, but I believe, Bibi, that you are absolutely right that you concentrate on the most important threat, Iran. And that's really, Bibi was focused all these yes. years, I think in an excellent way. But they said, we have another threat, but they will stay as one people, those who are in Israel, those who are not. And I know that Jewish agency, with all its problems, Trevor and I have a lot of history of criticizing Jewish agency and working together with Jewish agency. I know how unique it's placed between Jewish people and the state of Israel. I know how high the idealism of people involved in Jewish agency. And I believe that's something where I can have real change. And that's how I became for nine years the head of Jewish agency. I couldn't be more than nine years because I was nine years in prison. I was nine years in the government. <laughs> but I have to say that these years were much less problematic for me than in the government. Because of course there are huge problems with the budgets and with the bureaucracy and everybody who knows the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish agency's board consists from very different organizations. And the results are very difficult to make. But Nevertheless, the topics are so pure, the idealism is so high, and uh, whether you are dealing with Aliyah, whether you're dealing with Israel experience, whether you're dealing with fighting against anti-Semitism, whether you're dealing with Shlichim to different communities, I loved it all. And I was very happy to have an opportunity to, to develop all this and strengthen all this. What was your proudest moment in the Jewish agency? I was always very proud to be in the airport, to see the airplane with the new immigrants. I never was tired to do it, because with every new immigrant who is coming down, and you think how many generations, maybe from 20 to 30 to 40 generations of Jews are behind this person who were dreaming, who were praying, who were thinking about this moment, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, a thousand years, and here, that's like a, mystical, magic moment when this person touches the land, closes this great circle. That was one of The other thing which I was always very proud to see our young Shlichim in the most difficult places, in the most challenging situations, fighting anti-Semitism with the campus or strengthening community the most forsaken places in Russia, in Belarus, in Mexico, in New York, in Australia, everywhere. So I'm really very proud that during my time, the number of Shlichim almost doubled, and the average age of Shlichim went 12 years down, wow. from 38 to 26. Wow. We turned it into the instrument of the young people bringing their idealism to the community. What was your biggest frustration there? Well, frustration, look, I was involved in a number of very delicate and important negotiations trying to reconnect us stronger. One of these topics which I, Prime Minister asked me to deal with was prayer near the Kotel and the compromise which had to be reached. And I thought it, it would be reached because, after all, there is no ideological problem. It's only practical problem. But and for a few years, representatives of the government and the leaders of non-Orthodox Jewish movements and the rabbi of the court were sitting, discussing, and I, I brought all these parts together to the government 
And finally, we did succeed in a good compromise and the government voted for us. And then because of the coalition tensions and many reasons, I describe it in my book, which is now published, the prime minister felt that he has to retreat from it. And I felt that it was a huge mistake, huge mistake. And uh, I think it's made a lot of damage. Well, it's not damage which is cannot repair. We Jewish people are stronger than any crisis which we have. Uh, but no doubt that we spent a lot of efforts and I think we prepared a very important uh, step. So it was a disappointment. But okay, with all the disappointments, which, uh, and I speak frankly about great moments and the great disappointment, but the powerful march of Jewish people together to our mutual future, strengthened by our Zionist idea and uh, our state, it's so exciting, it's so powerful. From the moment I decided to be Jewish activist in the Soviet Union, to this day, I am excited every day to be part of this journey. In, in closing, you. what are you doing now? You left the Jewish agency. Are you you're writing? You, you have a new book? What are you doing? It's supposed <laughs> to be uh, the pension, but I'm the head, uh, the head of Jewish agency school for Shlichim, I'm the, the chairman, of course, voluntarily. And I'm the chairman of Isgab Institute fighting with the global anti-Semitism. I'm chairman of the board of the museum in the creation of Bobby Yar in Kiev. I just now finished with Gil Troy writing the book about the, all these experiences and all many other things. The most important thing, of course, that while being in Jewish agency, it were very fruitful years because I entered Jewish agency when I had no grandchildren. And when I finished, I had already seven grandchildren. Oh, it's beautiful. That's a very beautiful part of our uh, life. I hope we will will be able to share with them all the beauty of our Jewish life as we succeeded to share it with our daughter. Are all your grandchildren living near you? Are they all in... in Yeah, yeah, well, thanks God, we can be uh, all together. One of my daughters at this moment is in Boston where her husband is finished his post-radio degree, but... In, in uh, a few weeks, she's coming back with all the family, and we all hope that Corona will not... Make sure you can get them back in, you know? <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah, well, no, well, we'll overcome it. We'll overcome it. And it but usually, usually, we make sure that all of our children and our grandchildren are on the walking distance on Shabbat in order we can be together. Do you get to play any, any more chess these days or any other... Recreation. Well, uh, when I have time, no, of course now we have. Thanks to computer, you can have your chess partner in every part of the world. My big disappointment that I really don't succeed to make my grandchildren ambitious enough to wish to be the world chess champions. That was my great ambition. That I really didn't become world chess champion as I wanted because some moment they had to become political prisoner. So it's not too late. It's never too late. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, but I always explain to my grandchildren that if you want to be a world chess champion, critical age is from five to seven. Wow. And they start at five, but at seven, they're already interested in football much, and soccer much more <laughs> than chess. 
So that's at this moment, that's my biggest The new book, tell us about it. Ah, it's called Never Alone Life in Politics in Prison, in Politics and with Your People. Giltroy and myself are the authors of this book, and it's published in public affairs officially from the first of this September. It's in the show, but already now you can order it in Amazon or in your bookshop, already now pre-order and uh, get it with some discount. Natan Sharansky, a dissident, activist, politician, head of the Jewish agency. I don't know how many more titles, but it's such an honor that you joined us. Thank you so, so much. You forgot the grandfather of seven grandchildren. Sorry. Most important. Most important. I'm glad if Thank you. She'll be happy you said that. <laughs> God should bless you with many more years of service. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, shalom, Litraot, and hope to see all of you in Jerusalem. Amen. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.